Bonjour. Welcome to No Challenges Remaining at the end of the French Open. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined once again from Paris by NCR Spain and Sub-Center Africa correspondent Tamani Carriol. Tamani, you made it. Congratulations. How was your how was your French Open? It was long, it was very geopolitically, as as we'll discuss. There's a lot that happened that had nothing to do with tennis, but yeah, we, we survived, we made it, and yeah, it was good. Let's start the show with the tennis, though. There's two people who won the French Open singles title for the third time in their career, both in very different parts of their careers, but some parallelism there, both a third-time winner, Novak Djokovic and Iga Svantec, each winning for the third time. Novak at 36 years old, Svantec at 22 years old. Not too much in common, really, in their stories, other than that, that stat. But uh, let's start with Novak Djokovic, speaking of stats, who won his record-breaking for the men's 23rd Grand Slam singles title, breaking his tie with Rafael Nadal for the first time in his long career. Novak Djokovic is ahead of both Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal, who've been ahead of him most of his career in these slam counts. Obviously, he's a little bit younger and got a later start than them. He's at 23. The other guys are everyone else in men's tennis history is behind that at this point. And certainly of the players who are, you know, much younger, anyone younger than him is way behind him. I mean, we still are at a point where every single man born in the 90s has combined for only three Grand Slam singles titles, despite them all being, you know, or a lot of them being in their 30s by now. So so what do you make of this achievement? Obviously, this was not a big shock, especially once he won the semifinal, which was a huge favorite in the final against Casper Ruud. Today, we're recording this late on Sunday night. What does 23 sort of mean in the scope of of Djokovic's career and how is it as definitive and as important of a, of a milestone for him to hit as it's easily made out to be? Over the past few years, Djokovic has obviously achieved a ton of other things that kind of signified his greatness and his ability and, you know, his success, whether it's the, I mean, what what you call Djokovic win, winning all the, the Masters yeah. 1000s twice, uh, the weeks at number one record and, he said, uh, you know, he'd already had 22 slams. So I, I, it, I don't think it shifts anything, at least for me, in the way I view his career. But cl- clearly it's, it's massively significant that he's in the, the, the column that is most important and, and most kind of revered in, in tennis, that he's pushed past Nadal and Federer and, and has won more Gwenzlan titles than them. Particularly when you think back to... At the start of his career, he, he won his first Grand Slam title in 2008 and it took three years, three turbulent years for him to yeah. win his second. And, and at the beginning of that year, in 2011, when he had one, he had one title, Federer had 16, Nadal had nine, Nadal who's one year older than him. Mm. And so for, for him to kind of come back and, and end up in, in ahead of both of them when there was a time when it seemed like a two-horse race. Is is obviously massively significant. Um, I also think e- even more like significant for me is the fact how many have come in his thirties. He's he's now won eleven slams after thirty, which is crazy. If he if he was to win Wimbledon, which would be obviously heavily favoured too, half of his slams would be after the age of thirty, which is crazy wow. as well. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's just there, there are a ton of things and beyond just the number twenty three. Why it's it's significant. I think you put that in a really good way by that column. 23, slam count, we've talked about this before for years on the show. Like, slam count has become the predominant currency 
of measuring greatness in tennis in I, I sort of point to Pete Sampras, honestly. I think this is something they invented to make Pete Sampras interesting. The uh the Grand Slam count being the be all end all when he was chasing, I think, Roy Emerson's record to it was at twelve. That is something that really became the currency then. More than it was it was not something that was talked about, you know, in the era of Laver, in the era of Everett and Navratilova, certainly, who were both tied at eighteen. Uh that was not what they focused on and if you look back at that. But in this era for Djokovic's whole career, it was. Right. This was he was he played his entire career in an era where Grand Slams were uniformly important the whole way. All those players played as many of them as they possibly could and built their schedules around peaking at these events. And it's pretty apples to apples with him and and Nadal and Federer in terms of their eras, unlike comparing him to you know, someone else. So I certainly, you know, I, I think I was Chris Clary. I was on a on a bit with on CNN. Both of us were on there together. And he said that Djokovic might be the goat, but spelled g-o-t-e greatest of the era that's sort of you know clean and 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 clear at this point and on that front but i also do think that Djokovic's most convincing numbers are actually in other columns when you're talking about statistical goatness like for me the difference between 23 and 22 is actually really marginal that's like you know that's he has what like less that's like four percent more slams than at all to me that's not a big difference once you're like both in the low 20s, which one happens to be higher is not really convincing to me. What is convincing is that Djokovic, like you mentioned, the Jokimon, which is the, yeah, where he's won all the slams and all the Masters events and the year-end championships. I don't include the the, uh, the the Olympics in that. You could. If you wanted to include Olympics, he doesn't have an Olympic gold medal, like, fine. But he's won every Masters event at least twice and is two away. And if he wins Monte Carlo and Cincinnati again, he'll have won each of them three times. And no one else has won all of them once. Like, that is this category where he's really racking up just, like, insane numbers. And obviously, the number one, we said number one also, he's way ahead of the pack at this and still growing. He's back to number one with this win. Who knows how many more weeks he'll log. Also, that's without even having points from winning Wimbledon last year, which would put him even further ahead. So there's so many, there, there are numbers in that way. So I do think, like, statistically speaking, he is the top dog. And for that, so many people who want to try to be objective about it, that matters a ton. I do think there are definitions of greatness that don't have to do with just numbers and are much more subjective. I do completely think those arguments can be valid. And there's lots of things in tennis and sports where people measure greatness, not just by wins, not just by points scored or whatever sport it may be, or by, you know, things like that, but, but sort of showmanship and style points and character and, athletic whatever else you want to say like i think those things matter i was thinking i was trying to think of like a, a comparison for me and i was watching the uh women's doubles final today which was won by shacy way in her fifth grand slam doubles title one with uh wong Su the new uh, righty and for me like shay who's never been i don't think she ever was a top 20 player in singles to me she's like a great player because of how unique and fun and different and interesting and disruptive and original she was and would score higher on a sort of greatest of all time comprehensive ranking than some players who got much better results and much higher career peaks. Like I'm, I was thinking of like Safarova for some reason was the came, nine, name that came to mind for me of someone who was like briefly a top five player and made a slam final, but for me has nowhere near the impact or memorability of a Shea Suey. So that is to say like, if there are reasons why you listener, and I got lots of messages of this on Twitter from people who say like, for me, the go the greatest is always Federer and Nadal because of how they conduct themselves. Da 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 da. da. Fine, I'm not going to try to tell you you're wrong if you think that. 
But I think what this was talking about the number 23 was just him reaching him sort of checkmating the, the number side. Cause I don't think, I don't expect Nadal to, to win whenever, whatever form he's in to be winning more grand slams a, and then B certainly not ahead of whatever Djokovic adds to his tally. Cause I don't think Djokovic is done. Yeah. I also thought this was tournament was significant and this, this victory was significant because Djokovic has really entered his Serena era as in it slams only it slams, slams, slams are the only things that matter. He had, you know, one of his worst clay court seasons, Really, in like pre French Open clay court seasons of his career, he didn't make a semi final. He obviously had issues with his right elbow, withdrew from Madrid. Yeah, and and he's you know he's he said you know for the last few years actually he's he said I, I think from last year maybe um, he, he said that slams are his his priority and particularly after getting getting the the number one record that those were the slams were what mattered. But he still had success elsewhere. Whereas this was really him, you saw how just how transformed he was, you know, and how much more motivated he was at slams and, and at at the French Open this year. And and Goran Ivanisovic had a, um, a really good quote actually in in his press conference. Ivanisovic said he has this software in his head that he can switch when a Grand Slam comes. Grand Slam is a different different sport. Um, the the day he arrived here, he was better. He was more motivated. He was more hungry. So and yeah, we saw that. It was very clear. Yeah. No, Serena is absolutely a great analog for that. Certainly she, you know, sometimes paid dust to the rest of the sort of rank and file tour events. But also I think it's even more extreme at this stage of Djokovic because there is this different format for the men of playing this best of fives at the Grand Slams. And Djokovic is such a master of this format of best of five matches. Like he is so good at managing the matches at He's not like Nadal, who, and they were talking about this about on the NBC broadcast today with McEnroe and Mary Carrillo. They were saying, like, Nadal had this thing where he tried to win every single point, you know, and that was his whole shtick. It was like, every point would give my best and full effort all the time. Djokovic is not that way. Djokovic is much more strategic about his energy exertions and stuff. And we saw that, you know, hugely, if you want to go to this, I want to talk about this match specifically, in the semifinal against Carlos Alcaraz, who was favored by bookmakers to win this match. Uh, Djokovic was the underdog uh, in the betting odds against Alcaraz. Alcaraz, who, you know, had a long winning streak on clay this season in contrast to Djokovic and is the number one, but really just seemed to kind of punch himself out pretty early in this match. And by the time the third set was getting underway, he was dead on his feet. And the third and fourth sets were kind of a waste of time, honestly. I mean, Alcaraz was so useless out there. Uh, just with it, him, him cramping and just not feeling physically physically up to it, having sort of burned too brightly, maybe, or gone too hard or done too much energy expending, whether it's on nerves, whether it's actually on how he's playing points, um, or whether it's how, you know, even nerves and conditioning even before the match. And Djokovic won that just, I think, solely won it the way he did the third and fourth, just solely on experience more than anything. And it was kind of crazy to see this super, super athletic, you know, 20 one 20 year old guy you know fading this rapidly against a 36 year old who just became the oldest french open champ ever you would think it'd be the other way around you think the old guy would be the one who would have the physical struggles in the in the big match but it was completely flipped yeah what do you make of that anything else i said but especially i want your thoughts on this on the alcaraz match and how djokovic won that and why because that was the most highly anticipated match of the tennis year i think and the first two sets were pretty good not i don't think they were as amazing as everyone says they were and they were pretty good and then, the, but then it was the second two, the final two sets were a complete waste of time. It was just completely done and dusted. 
Yeah, I, I found the entire scenario like kind of interesting and fascinating because just how, how strongly Alcaraz copped to his cramping was directly about nerves. He, he said from yeah. the beginning, in, in the Spanish part, he said from, from the beginning of, of the day, like but before the match, he, he felt it in his stomach. He felt this t- the tightness in his stomach and it just affected him, you know, his nerves and his, you know, and tension just affected him the whole day and you know but by the as soon, obviously the match started and it was extremely intense and the first two sets were you know it wasn't the best tennis of all time but it was really it was high quality intense and had some you know the highlights were amazing highlights were amazing of those yeah first two sets. yeah and they were just you know there was drop shots i don't know drop shots running on the court you know crazy crazy winners yeah it was very intense and i think you know that that everything combined just hit Alcaraz physically and and so, so yeah that that was interesting to me particularly considering that since Alcaraz has emerged that the kind of narrative has has been that he lives for these occasions and I'm sure in, in his head he does right that that he lives for these big matches and that's the way he plays yeah. his best tennis and I went to his his club in in Muthia and that's kind of what what I heard constantly as well but. It's one thing to to play your best in the big occasion. It's another thing to do it to to be ready for Novak Djokovic at a, a Grand Slam tournament, and also in this weird scenario where he's playing Djokovic for the first time, but he's the favorite for the first time in the Slam, but he's yeah. the favorite and he's the, he's the number one and he has all this weight, and yeah, clearly it's it's not that's not a scenario that I mean if you think about it, almost anyone's ever really. You know, since Djokovic no. became Djokovic, almost anyone's ever gone through, and yeah, and clearly it was it was too much for him. The the question obviously for him is if this is just a one off, and if the next time he faces Djokovic, all is good, and you know puts it to the side and can play his best tennis, etc. Um, or or if or if something like this happens again, and that that would be worrying, I think. A lot of this came down to just sort of just inexperience and immaturity, if you want to call that, I think, this match for, for Alcaraz. Like you said, the, sort of having the energy and the nerves sap even starting hours before the match began, you know, draining the tank. And that's, those are things you learn, you know, with with yeah. experience to manage that occasion. And you're right. I mean, it, it's easy to Monday morning quarterback this, as we'd say in the U.S., in, in making Alcaraz the favorite for this match. Because when you look at it, when we see what happened, Alcaraz had never played any big three guy at a Grand Slam before. This was a huge hurdle that he had not proven that he could clear and he did not clear it on the pure tennis level. Like, yes, in terms of how he's playing the tournament, how he hit the ball, all those things were fine, but the intangibles, you know, of, of grand of the stage should have been so heavily in Djokovic's favor. Um, and even just like efficiency in the match. And that's what, again, what Djokovic does so well, which is maybe what doesn't win him the sort of passionate love that uh, a lot of fans, you know, have for Nadal and, and Federer in terms of their, their grace and elegance. So what Djokovic has is this incredible efficiency and just being so good at at managing matches and doing like the right things. And you just saw Alcaraz not doing that in this match in terms of like playing way too sort of cat and mousey too much, like running around too much in some of these rallies, like just playing kind of low percentage tennis at a lot of times, which made for some highlight real stuff for sure. And some exciting stuff, and he won a set. I mean, he wasn't, you know, out of the contest, but it was still didn't look sustainable um, in the way that Djokovic looks incredibly sustainable and repeatable, um, even in this final against Casper Ruud when he was 
taking a lot of time between points in that first set and looking like he was feeling the heat or something physically and just going really slow. Even still, you just trusted that he would have more gears. And sure enough, by the by the third set, he's smoking, you know, forehands at 95 miles per hour and stuff and looking totally fine. Like he he just understands what he has in his body and in his arsenal and can judiciously choose which which card to play or which, you know, weapon to use at what time very very perfectly in that way and that's tough that's i think that's really just experience and alcaraz didn't have that because you know alcaraz there's only a second slam semifinal of his career like he just hasn't been in that stage very much at all so i think i think for alcaraz it's not like he's like oh you know i'm not saying oh he well i did see someone say it is i think it's worth pointing out Djokovic didn't play the slam he won in the 2022 u.s open uh, yeah, he's time to develop and mature. I'm not saying it's like the end of times for Alcaraz, yeah. but I think we were overestimating how ready he was to, yeah, march through uh, yeah. this draw. And it's, it's it's funny because a 20 year old having cramping, you know, cramping against a big three player or even just like a an established older player in best of five is is a fairly regular scenario. Yeah, and 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 something that a lot of players at, at that age have to go through, but. Big, Obviously, because of kind of his precocity and and what what he's achieved already so far in his career, it it yeah it, it was if not shocking, just like extremely unexpected and and again just like an an interesting scenario and an unexpected scenario compared to the the massive hype that had been surrounding the match. And it was disappointing because there had been so much excitement for this match and for this cramping to hit fairly early in this match, really around the two hour mark and just after two sets when they had split sets after Alcaraz had won the second set, especially like you didn't, I had, there was no sign that he was going to tap out that, that uh, immediately, no. you know, in the early in the third set. So that, that was frustrating and just disappointing that this match everyone had been excited for. And lots of like sort of non tennis fan friends. I was, I, I really do think this was like the only, I think it has something to do with bit, the bar being low this season and just not a lot of the biggest names in tennis being frequently active. But this was for me, exponentially ahead of any other match this year in terms of excitement and, and hype and, and actually about the tennis uh, men's or women's this year. This Alcaraz Djokovic semifinal was was it. I do want to talk briefly about the final and the finalists, the runner up Casper Rude, who made it to another Grand Slam final, his third Grand Slam final, and did it all within the last five Grand Slams. Three Grand Slam finals, obviously he didn't win any of them. Uh, only won one set. He won a set against Alcaraz in the U.S. Open final, and that was actually a pretty close match for a lot of that match. And he acquitted himself today decently, and the scoreline certainly. And that first set was was close, and he had a lead. What does it say about about Casper Ruud that he's made three Grand Slam finals? Uh, what does it say about the men's field that he's made three Grand Slam finals? Because three is a lot. There's a lot of players, you know, much more talked about, much more hyped, much more accomplished players who don't have three. I mean, three is a lot. I mean, Tsitsipas. Zverev, Rublev, I had a whole list of people who haven't made three Grand Slam finals I tweeted out today. Like, There's a lot of people who are, you know, much more in the talk uh, of the sport who were not near three, who are not at three or near three. And and he's there. And, and what does that say? And I will say also, coloring your answer maybe a little bit, but like, he hasn't had a great win at a slam to speak of. His biggest win at a slam, I think, was this tournament beating Holger Runa in the quarterfinals, who was number six. Like, he's kind of it's been in the right place at the right time in a lot of these draws, but it's also not a fluke to do it three times in, in five slams. That's not just getting lucky with, with easy draws. No, it, it shows a, a few things that, that if you continue to improve, if you have the right attitude, etc., 
then you can make make significant strides if 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 you think at the start of well before 2022 people thought he was a clay court specialist and and yeah. thought he didn't he you know he he didn't really have the results on hard courts and obviously he made the US Open final Miami Open final uh, ATP finals final yeah uh, but in general terms of I think you know you're right he he hasn't had to defeat Nadal or, or Djokovic to to reach a final or or that kind of lofty... Or even like a Tsitsipas or a Medvedev or anybody. Like, he hasn't been them. Yeah, but I think it shows that, that, I mean, there are many players who who end up in a a draw or a section of the draw that people might consider soft or just just that that has opportunity, but many of them don't take them. Yannick Sinner was in that bottom half and he didn't make the final. But but Rude... you know, last year was obviously an incredible breakthrough for him, and he he showed again this year that he can do it. That he can you know navigate a, a slam draw, best of five over two weeks. Yeah, it was interesting actually to, to hear from him because because obviously he's this year was before before Rome really. This was a horrible year. Yeah, you know his 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 basically sophomore year as a top player. He, you know his his results were not good. Um, I remember him lose, in Madrid losing to Matteo Arnaldi, what number, I think 105 or something, in straight sets and just looking completely, you know, completely passive, getting dominated. And yeah, but but yeah, he he said that he he feels that this this run showed that it essentially showed that it wasn't a fluke that he can he can replicate it that he thinks that um, it it might put some maybe doubt you know it, him backing up his, his from the his runs from the previous year might kind of have an impact on the locker room and give you know give him more respect and and make people you know give, give him a big greater aura basically my, my main thought is that I think he's shown that when he has an opportunity to go through a draw he, he will take it and many players haven't been able to and yeah and that's an, a great achievement. He reminds me a lot, kind of, not so much game-wise, a little bit game-wise in terms of being solid, but results-wise, he reminds me a lot of, in a different era, obviously, of Ferrer, right? Where Ferrer was really good at beating the players he was supposed to beat. I, you know, I think on this podcast and elsewhere, and I'll just end up calling him the bouncer, where he was very, very good at keeping the riffraff out, but also let the VIPs stroll right past him. You know, like, and Rude yeah. kind of has that same thing going. And, and you know, and it was just in that Ferrer was routinely running into the, you know, yeah. Federers, the, the Djokovic's and the Dolls, those three guys, and Murray, some also, um, in the quarterfinal stage of Grand Slams. Occasionally a semifinal, if one of them went out early, usually. Um, and, yeah, they would just get have its natural stopping point. Made it with one final. And they didn't have to play one of the big three guys before the final. I think got killed by by Nadal in that final in 2013, I believe French Open. 2013, yeah, yeah. So, so that's sort of where it is, and you know, there's a lot to be said for for consistency, and a lot of these players haven't really had it. I mean, like Medvedev, you know, Medvedev was we talked about on the draw show was a legitimate title contender and was in the mix after winning Rome. Like he had put together a great body of work on clay, and then he goes out and plays flat against a player who played really well uh, in Shebot Field in that in that first round. Uh, but then Medvedev is out, and that creates a big draw 
implosion or caving in in that section of the draw that Zverev made it out of the wreckage of that without you know beating Tiafo, who's not a big accomplished clay player, but otherwise had a very very soft path to that that semifinal. Um, also interesting that both Zverev and Rude defended their points. That was not people were not expecting that from this tournament. Well, we did talk about Zverev on the draw show as someone. I thought his draw was really, really open, actually. But anyway, yeah, it's there's space to be had. And, you know, if Djokovic is, if the big four, which was such a clear tentpole, you know, one in each quarter of essentially for so much of their peak, if that's now a big one and it's just Djokovic, there's a lot of space and a lot of real estate for people to come through. And, and Rude, yeah, Rude has those sort of experienced kind of qualities that we talked about with Djokovic, you know, the managing a best of five tournament, managing a two week tournament, and he's a very efficient player in that way. And, and that's come up, you know, good for him three times now. And it's only going to keep getting better for him, you know, even if he doesn't have the biggest weapons and the most talent, you know, for lack of a better word, just his efficiency and his reliability sets a very high floor for himself that I think will will elevate him pretty far and, and definitely yeah. has in this tournament. So so credit to him. And he's, a, you know, obviously a very, I think, highly respected and well-liked and pleasant figure on the tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and all that's great to have around, you know, I don't think he's, he's not being talked about like, um, I'm trying to think who's in, like, uh, Clysters or even like a team. Someone is like, oh gosh, oh, for three in these finals, when they're going to break through? Because I think no one gave him a shot in any of these finals really, uh, that he was <laughs> in, uh, even though he was one match away from being number one, if he beat Alcaraz in that U S open final, it yeah. been, it's kind of crazy to think. And he had he had two set points for two sets, so one lead against Alcaraz. Yeah, that was a close. That was a close match. That was a close match yeah. in that New York final, which again maybe shows that maybe we were overestimating Alcaraz because Alcaraz had you know very tough five set win over Tiafo in that semifinal in New York, and then a very could have gone either way final against Rude. Like it wasn't like he was decisively closing out this slam impenetrably in New York. Anyway, that's basically most of the men's sort of tennis side of stuff I want to talk about. Any other sort of men's results? sorts of things you want to uh, discuss any even even like early exits you know you mentioned Sinner that was disappointing losing to yeah. Altmaier uh, any other any other people who come to mind as you're sort of looking at this this men's field on the on-court side the break I, I was impressed by Echeverry even though mm-hmm. he lost in four sets to Zverev uh, that you know, first, first career quarterfinal um, some quarterfinal felt like it was coming he, he'd been you know in, in great form and in 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 the tour events and yeah he brought it to the to the big stage. Uh, I I thought Bruno was was pretty dis- disappointing even though he he matched his result made another quarter quarter final he he you know he, he same grudge match against Casper Ruud but he just didn't turn up for the first two sets he was just horrific really for the first two sets uh, and I was actually really impressed he finally came alive in that quarter final against Ruud and. And force it to a four set. I was actually really impressed with how Rude responded and just slammed the door shut like like a top player should. Aside from that, um, Tsitsipas uh, m- making the quarters, but then get almost getting completely obliterated by Alcaraz. I, I think he 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 has <laughs> has a lot to think about after that loss. It was, you know, he he made it the third set respectable in the end, saving couple of, saving a match point and then forcing a third set tiebreak, but. I'd, it was quite shocking to see him just dismantled like that. He'd won four games up until Galkwes had reached match point. Anyone else for you? No, I think you you covered pretty much all of it. I would chat, we mentioned the draw show as well, but uh, Hachanov making another quarterfinal, like his slam results have been yeah. great. Going semi-semi and then yeah. quarter and losing to Djokovic in that quarter. I mean, that's like, 
that's that's really reliable for someone who doesn't get talked about much at all. Uh, kind of doing a Casper Rudish sort of thing, really, because again, not many huge wins for Hatchinov in these slam runs. I guess actually his win over Kyrgios in New York was actually kind of a big win because um, Kyrgios yeah, was very in form right, there. Yeah. But because Kyrgios had made the Wimbledon final and that draw, the half of the draw was considered pretty open. Yeah, so that was a, maybe his best, most or most sort of high pressure win of all of them. Yeah, and, but yeah, yeah, he's doing well. In, in general, I, I enjoyed just the South American presence. Yeah, uh, along with Echeverry, Shari, Sarundalo, Varelas, even just a, yeah. a ton of them. And obviously, they they bring a lot, you know, enthusiastic fans, a different playing style. So that was enjoyable. Yeah, it's great um, to have them back yeah. on the map, and in and we we'll need to transition to the women actually, because uh, Beatrice Maya was yeah. the big one uh, making the semifinals out of Brazil, uh, best run by a Brazilian in a long time, a Grand Slam singles draw, and and she played Iga Swiatek tough in that semifinal, and just looked looked very good after having never made it past the second round of a Grand Slam previously. She looked up for the up for the stage, and like that match against Sarah Srivas Tormo was the sort of classic dirtball brawl. It was just it was sort yeah. of exactly the, a certain, a very specific kind of tennis. It was everything you want from that. So let's talk about the women. I had I had one one more question. One more question. Sorry, what did you make of Fritz Rindagnetch and the, you know Fritz's reaction to the crowd? Did you enjoy it? Do you think it was great? Did you think it was cringeworthy? I think that it was incredibly. The French crowd just seemed like bored and desperate at this tournament to me. <laughs> I That's think, true. for lack uh, of a better term, yeah. like they just seemed like they had nothing going for them on court in terms of French results. The French players did bad. Rinderknecht was the last Frenchman standing in the second round match already, and he was getting beat by Taylor Fritz. And they just decided, yeah, to turn on him and they just having fun and booing. And, you know, and Fritz, you know, clearly was affected by it. Um, I have zero problem with him, like, you know, shushing them after winning. I mean, like, that's t- that's totally, totally fair game. And they were completely harassing and haranguing him um, for hours. Um, so that, that didn't bother me at all. The fact that they, like, followed up and continued to, um, you know, bully him in the next round was, I mean, again, these people are, are very bored. This is what they're doing is holding grudges against Taylor Fritz, who did nothing to them in this front. So I thought it was mostly harmless but if i'm fritz i'm sure i'm annoyed by it like why like why was i subjected to this completely arbitrary grudge it didn't do anything to really earn it it's fine to have people you know to be a heel if you if you do something to earn it but fritz really couldn't point to anything he did except for play against a french guy who was overmatched like that's all it was so i thought it was silly it, it seemed like the booing and um, you were in the stands obviously like the booing in general seemed like it was reports i was hearing more than usual like that just people yeah. were just eager to boo you know, and Djokovic got yeah, booed several it, times. Yeah, yeah. It, it felt like just the, the crowd behavior in general was just so much more dramatic than in previous years. And the, of, clearly, the French crowd are notorious for, for booing and being dramatic. But yeah, but there was the booing. It was even with like Pui early in the tournament when they were breaking out in, into the, the national anthem, the Marseillaise, every, every two seconds. It, it was, yeah, it was whistling and booing. It was even in the final with, with, with Djokovic and and Rude, which by no means a, you know, firecracker match, was by no means a, a, the most thrilling match of all time. Yeah, the crowd couldn't shut up. Like they're, they're constantly <laughs> shouting, shouting when, when player when players were like when both players were about to serve. Some of them would be like cheering for Djokovic, but shouting when he's serving. Like what the hell? Like, he, why are you why are you 
distracting the person you want to win this match. It doesn't make any sense. And yeah. so it was very, it was just very unruly. And I was very confused. It's like, <laughs> why would you pay all this money to a slam final to be so disruptive to someone you're rooting for? It, 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 a lot of it didn't make sense to me. I mean, that's, those are kind of different categories. I think, like, I wonder if some of it's just, like, Serbian, especially because a lot of the shouting I heard on TV was in Serbian. Like, if it's just, like, people wanting to be heard, want to make sure Novak hears him, so you wait till it's quiet, and then you have the whole stadium to yourself to shout whatever you want to him. Maybe that's maybe that's part of it. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but then, like, I was also wondering, and I don't know if you have a chance, if thoughts on this, like, just you were just in Paris, but, like, how much all this unrest that's been happening in Paris and in France with the the protests over to get political again the you know the retirement age and all the the you know low scale rioting that was happening over that uh, around Paris like how much of that energy and that disruptive behavior was bleeding into the stands of Roland Garros like is that wrong to say that or is that part of it? it's just sort of in the atmosphere now in France to to be uh, hell raising to to be honest I'm I'm not sure I'm, yeah. but it's certainly possible that 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 is the general vibe is a result of things that were happening outside of the tournament yeah. and yeah. And the, the general, I guess, atmosphere in, in Paris. Yeah. I didn't expect you to have a, a, a really confident answer. Either. I was just thinking it's sort of a thing that I was correlating a bit. Yeah. When, when, when I'm, when I'm fluent in French, French next year, I'll have a better answer. I'm sure. <laughs> Très bien. All right. Uh, Igor Svantec, again, not fluent in French, but fluent in the French open for sure. Really speaking of people with interesting career accomplishments, Maria Sakkari beating Iga Svantec in the quarterfinals in 2021 comes out as one of her better career feats because it's been very hard to do this, to beat Iga Svantec at the French Open. She's won 2020, 2022, 2023, and mostly really running away with stuff. Uh, she was about to run away with this whole tournament without dropping a set. She was up 6-2-3 love in the final over Carolina Mukova before that got interesting. Mukova climbed back, and Mukova, who had a great comeback in the semifinals against uh, Irina Sabalenka, uh, and Sabalenka was way up in that third set, up 5-2. And then Mukova, you know, kind of flipped the switch and barely lost points and, and won the last five games in a row uh, to really steal that match from Sabalenka when we were looking very close to having a likely, because it was the first semifinal, but it looked like we are going to have a number one versus number two semifinal we thought we were going to get. Mukova disrupted that. Um, so great return from Mukova. We'll talk about her in a bit, but I want to start with Iga as the champion. Like, what... What did you learn about Iga this time, uh, Tumani, from from this tournament, maybe especially from the final that she prevailed in? I learned that we, we may be at, in the midst of a, a dynasty, a proper Kaikot dynasty that we haven't had certainly since, I'd, I'd say since Justine Hennen, but that was four Roland Garros's and she's already won away. Uh, and yeah, just, just clearly this, this has not been, it's funny that on one hand, this has not been an ideal year for Shrentek after you know her crazy achievements in 2022 she she's had this year she's obviously had actual rivals and you know players formidable rivals who have, be, have beaten her in, in big matches she's had a couple of tricky injuries that she's had to deal with when she withdrew from miami and 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 then an even trickier one getting injured in rome just before Roland Garros. so so but you know she again once again she delivered she came to Roland Garros and and it, this feels like her place now, right? This feels like uh, every every year the the, the her aura in the place is, is building, and you know she she as you said she was it was quite simple through the the first up until the final she didn't drop a set she played some great tennis, you know she had you know she, she played golf in the you know her quarterfinal against golf I thought golf handled herself well um, yeah 
and completely changed off her tactics and was playing loopy balls and you know these kind of a mixture of loopy and heavier topspin forehands. But um, Shiontek dealt with with everything well. Um, I think it was actually probably important for her that 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 the, the final ended up being as challenging as it was. Um, because as we've kind of seen in her career, she's she's such a great front runner. She can just tear, just destroy her opponents really. And when she gets into a rhythm, you know, given how good she is defensively and offensively, you know, players can be very helpless against her. But you know, when she's pushed and when she's you know when she's either pushed or or an opponent is actually running away with a match, that's when she struggles. So the fact that she was she her, her lead vanished and she ended up in a third set she was down a break twice but she was still able to you know at the end down three four down down a break in the third set against Mukova um she she found you know she she locked up her game she gave very little away she returned really well and she found her way through um obviously yeah and she was playing against an incredibly tough opponent who you know with a unique game style ton a lot of variety slicing coming to the net and yeah, I think that was a big breakthrough for her and and just, you know, coming through such a tough match, almost three hours and, and coming away with, with the win. And now she, yeah. you know, again, her, her aura is even bigger now and this is her home. This is her place. Yeah, I totally agree. You're right. Ennin's the comparison, but her numbers are already, to use numbers again, are going to pass Ennin pretty quickly because Ennin didn't actually rack up that many titles. It was very good for a short period of time, which is obviously what yeah. he's done so far, but didn't have the longevity. And he gets so young, we would think she might. And obviously, you know, she modeled herself after Nadal, and Nadal did what he did. That's obviously a crazy bar to set at 14, the French Open titles. But but Iga certainly doesn't look done, and it looks it looks sustainable and repeatable. And you're right. And Mukova is such a tough test because Mukova, obviously, um, was not only such a player with such variety. She also, like, hit so many different gears in this match. I mean, because she was, like, kind of out of it for a while and then changed things up and was just not playing, like, consistently tactically. Like, it didn't seem like Mukova was playing totally from my eye with, like, from a lot of the matches, like, real tactical clarity, per se, which has to make it tough for Iga to read when the other person is just sort of improvising a lot of the way uh, in changing gears so much. And then, yeah, it just sort of happened, like, in the third set. Like, when she got to her third set, Mukova was clearly confident and, and, yeah, got out to that lead. And you're right, Iga is, reminds me almost of, like, early Federer in some ways, where we've seen her so much in these grand slams just roll and just sort of dazzle and just, you know, demoralize and blitz people who are just not in her league. Right. And so rarely do you see what happens, you know, and, uh, you know, when the, when you have, when you get knocked down, right. When you suddenly the opponent lands a real punch, like how do you, how staggered are you from that? And, you know, we saw that at, at Wimbledon last year where she had that really kind of listless loss to Alize Cornet, uh, where she didn't didn't fight very well in that match, it seemed like. And obviously she had just gone through the winning streak, and it was a different situation. It was a surface she wasn't super comfortable on. But she was not a great fighter in that match, memorably. Uh, and so for her, in this very uncharted territory, it was the first time playing a third set in a Grand Slam final. She'd won all the previous ones in straights. Um, she has not had very many big battles. And yeah, she's just not a player who's sort of built that way. She's been built to sort of cruise. Um, and for her to do that, I think is a brilliant achievement unlocked. I think we'll give her a lot of confidence uh, in the future if she gets in situations that she can do it. I mean, she did have like she had that tricky semifinal at the U.S. Open last year against Sabalenka. Sabalenka yeah. That was the one yeah. that kind of came to mind. But that's a very different opponent. 
an opponent who hadn't been there before. And obviously Mukova hadn't been there before either, but also, um, yeah, it was, you know, I was just, it was impressed. And I think it was actually an important and more impressive, you know, counterintuitively thing for her to win, you know, needing to come back in the third rather than if she had just delivered a second set bagel, like it looked like she might, yeah. you know, this, this one was more impressive and more meaningful to me than Shiantek winning two and O would have been, uh, against Mukova. Yeah, and I think we just need to kind of, again, just note how incredible her numbers are and just what she's doing right now. She's 22 years old and she has four, four slams and three Roland Garros. Her, her um, winning record at, her record at Roland Garros is 28-2, which is crazy. Yeah. Her overall um, her overall win-loss record is, you know, her career win-loss record is, I think with this win, it's, it's now up into 80 I don't know that I can't remember the numbers but it's it's 80 percent and for me 80 percent is like the that that's what 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 the, what the greats yeah. most of the greats in in their heyday at least you know but before they're they're 40 years old and, and losing every week <laughs> threeness um yeah, that, that that's that no that but I'm, I'm not I'm not even being Kind of shady there because you know Venus no, is on Venus. The numbers, the numbers, the numbers get her. deflated for sure by playing later. Exactly, yeah. Worse, yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so that's like that. That's if, if you're winning essentially uh, four of every five matches, and that that's elite. And and she's 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 got all of those numbers, and obviously she's racking up titles outside of slams. She has fourteen titles now, world number one. I mean, she's she's already very high on the. All time, what, what you know, weeks at number one list and and counting. Um, is it, again, on that note, it was also an important because the number one was at risk for the for the first time. Um, yeah, since since she's been been number one, if Sabalenka had matched or or I mean, uh, until at a certain point, if Sabalenka had matched or beat or beaten her, um, her result, she Sabalenka would have been the new number one. Yeah. Um, and yeah, she she just she handled all of that really well, and clearly she's on an, an incredible trajectory. Yes, yes, she has she has more she's had more competition this year. The the players who who can, clearly can beat her have shown they can beat her, but she's still on this kind of special path as a twenty two year old four time Grand Slam champion now. And yes, it's just very impressive. And yeah. you mentioned that match against Coco Golf, which I watched all of, and like it was a it was a really great testament to both. I think it's because golf we talked about in the draw show, you know, has not been good in these matches against the uh, top players. And, and Iga had really had her number and just has not been interesting or close in these matches uh, at all. And golf did show that she was ready to adjust and to really sort of throw the kitchen sink at her. I saw or just a very typical plan that she wanted to execute. She was hitting these like high balls, uh, basically hitting forehands down the line, huge number down the line forehands, which obviously people don't know. You mostly hit your shots cross court, but she was hitting like 80% of forehands down the line and really trying to get to that and had a very clear tactical tactical play, which is great to see her, you know, clearly trying to play some chess and not just go out there and play my game, which is a cliche, especially WTA, and is, is frustrating um, when you just repeatedly don't win uh, Maria Sharapova. Um, but, you know, with with... with Shvantec, she saw that and adjusted and was still better, you know, and, and the scoreline for that match at the end was 6-4-6-2, which is still a pretty clean win for Iga, despite all the moral victories you could kind of assign to that for golf. I almost wonder, you know, how golf feels like I did something and it kind of worked, but I still didn't really come near winning. 
like how that feels uh, for her there. Uh, but yeah, but Shantek is still that good. And, and you know, in that semifinal against uh, Hadad Maya, the first set I think was closer than the score indicated. I think it felt closer than 6-2 in the first set for sure. Uh, and then, yeah, tiebreak, 9-7, uh, the tiebreak to, to win it in straights. Um, yeah, I had, to, I had to work a bit for it, but but it's proving so far mostly after the challenge, at least at the French Open. You know, at least at her happy place, she has that going for her. Yeah, actually, that, that was a really good second set. It was really intense. Um, um, Hadad Maya was also kind of throwing the, the kitchen sink at, at Shontek. Um, you know, heavy tops in forehand, but also flattening it out, coming to the net constantly. Played really well to, to make the, that tie, second set tie break really tight. Had a set point. But again, Shriantek stepped up and the, the final four po- points of that, um, that, that that set, that match, um, were winners. And three of them were Shriantek, just you know, three of them were from Shriantek. And it was just really impressive how she kind of you know, took control of it and, and shut shut the door on, on uh, like a, a really good head admirer who, yeah, as, as you mentioned earlier, just a, a big breakout tournament for her. And, and and one that was kind of coming. Yeah, agree. Yeah, she obviously had that great run and made the final of Toronto. I did well in much of the grass terms for Wimbledon last year. Um, and not much of those points coming up to defend. So it's nice timing for her to get a, a big result uh, here in, in Paris. Uh, you know, get the seven final, 700 or whatever points for making the semifinal. Coming very handy for her there. Um, yeah, just nice to have Brazil, which is a huge country. You know, uh, people don't realize, mm-hmm. I think, how big Brazil is in area and population. Fifth biggest country, I think, in both in the world it is a big old place and having it on the map and having the fans on the map is very meaningful for tennis uh you know to have this there people i you know people who write for like the website saying the harab maya traffic is huge for harab maya coverage and stories like she is a, a real value add actually even people aren't paying tons of attention to her know that she's almost like yeah it's a big deal yeah i yeah i agreed sorry my <laughs> i should note this my um resultina just flashed up burn Bernard Tomic versus Donald Young. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so wow. that's a that's a thing. That's the thing that had happened. Um, Did they were yeah, they already so played, yeah, so or are they going to play? Is they, it, uh, they, they they played Tomic beat Young um, four and two. Wow, yeah. that's that that's the thing that just happened. That's that's spectacular. <laughs> um, okay, wow, that's yeah, that's a different era. That could be, that could be any time from like twelve years ago. Goodness. All right, that's just kind of sad now. Not, it makes me sad. All right. Yeah. Uh, speaking of things that make me happy, though, Carolina Mukova, very, very crowd-pleasing player. Uh, lots of style points. People really fond of her of her tennis and her all-court game and her just sort of very chill attitude a lot of time. And comeback story for her, having been injured last year. Uh, what do you make of, of Mukova's run? I don't know. I'm not sure this sets her up necessarily as a – fixture of the top of the sport but i thought it was a really great example of someone just having you know a, a carpe diem two weeks and making the most of the opportunities and and doing the thing i mean her draw you t- you applied it in the draw show i remember and i actually picked i thought soccer would win that match but soccer mukova is a very tough first round match um and then she beats podorosko made a semifinal here a few years ago begu who's not easy avin yasin who's uh uh yeah, it's a lucky loser is playing well. And then, yeah, marches through beating Pavlyuchenkova, who was a really big surprise quarterfinalist uh, coming, had not had a great <laughs> year, even though she made the final a couple years ago. Uh, the big comeback against Sabalenka we talked about. We haven't talked about that really too much, but yeah, what do you make of Mukova? And is this just a, a wonderful sort of fairy tale run for her? Or is this the start of uh, her actually maybe 
pushing towards top 10 and being a, a, a fixture in the, in the top of the women's game. What do you think? Um, I mean, obviously with the, with the WTA, the answer is, the real answer is I have no idea. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I, clearly she has just the, the talent to, to, to the, both the talent and the ability to kind of replicate this on, on all surfaces. Clay is actually, I think, her least favorite surface, really, yeah. even though she's obviously shown that she's capable on it in the past. Yeah, just just the the kind of the the technical ability, the variety, the just the natural talent in her hands is quite immense, and 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 obviously when her her biggest issue really has been just a constant stream of injuries. She had them. I mean, going into the finals, for me, one of the most crazy bonkers stats is that she was five five love against um top players ranked right inside top the top three, three players. Yeah, you know, amazing. Yeah, and 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 a lot of those matches that. Wins had come up, come in big matches on big stages. Beat Bart, Bart um, I didn't say Bartley. Beat Barty in the course of the Australian Open when when Barty was world number one. Beat Osaka, um, you know, clearly beat Sabalenka here in Paris. And yeah, she, I think she's an excellent player, and 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 that really kind of underlines that she she shows up in big matches. It's just about getting there and being physically robust and in, in this extremely you know difficult tour where you know where, where it's, it's physically demanding and everything but I've, yeah in terms of ability i think she's tremendous and 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 yeah, i mean I, I think to be honest we'll probably know more in the next few weeks because the, the grass season's upon us and she's obviously a great grassball player this is where she had one of her first big big wins reaching the quarters of of wimbledon um a yeah. few years ago so yeah, she's in the top twenty now, which means she'll she'll get better draws, and I think she's sixteenth. Uh, I want to say now. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, so so I, I think I mean she's put herself in position to have sustained success, and and let's see if she can a be consistent from week to week, and if she can stay healthy because that's really been her biggest issue. If the fatigue is not too much, and the body is is holding up okay from this run. She deserves to be talked about as a shortlist kind of contender at Wimbledon because she's playing yeah. the best tennis of her life and about to be on the best surface. And not a lot of these, well, actually, that's not really true, but certainly Shantek, who is the number one, does not play her best on grass. That's an opening there in, in the field. And also maybe even if she gets in that Shantek quarter, let's say, there could be some space, in if, assuming that Shantek doesn't get it together, which she might for all we know. Um, and then Sabalenka, you know, has played pretty well on grass, actually. Um uh, and Rybakina is the defending champion, so it's not completely open. But like, it's not a grass-loving, you know, really group of top players. Well, now that I'm saying this, I may be maybe completely wrong because I'm thinking of like Jabir now. Obviously, is a great grass quarter. And, yeah, uh, I, don't I know. feel like I but, feel like there's been a, there's been a shift recently. What we I agree, I guess until like a couple of years ago. But yeah, you're right. There's Jabir. Rybakina maybe thinking more of the so. men. And the men's is where a lot of like the sort of mid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. say mid top 10 yeah. but maybe just mid a lot of a lot of the best players are pretty mid on on the grass uh you know your your Zverev, Tsitsipas, Medvedev like those are not those are not Rublev have not had great results on grass um and it's kind of a different group of players on the men's side with exception of Djokovic um who are who are doing it you know you get more Berrettinis and Shapovalovs and Kyrgios and different kind of people making the runs on on grass her catch um a different kind of group uh so anyway um any other i want to talk about sabalenka but i want to get to her i'm going to use her to segue into the geopolitics stuff 
So anyone else in the draw you want to talk about before we get to Sabalenka and the off-court stuff? I mean, obviously it's kind of geopolitical, but one of the biggest, I mean, it's related to this exact storyline, but I mean, I think one of the biggest stories was Svitolina, clearly. Her, yeah, her, yeah. Um, her first her first son since giving you know giving birth since having her her daughter Sky, um, yeah. and she after winning Strasbourg in um, the week before she um, made it to the quarterfinals. It was a really really great run. Uh, played I think played at times more more proactively than you saw um, her before the, um, before she you know took took time off to her maternity leave. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it was just—I thought it was just really, really impressive to see her hit the ground running like that. And she talked about how taking some time away from, you know, obviously it was enforced by having a baby, but t- taking that time away from the tour allowed her to just, as, as you hear from many players, it get mentally refreshed her and just allowed her to live life a bit. And clearly, the the circumstances weren't ideal with with the war going, the, the war in Ukraine and everything. Mm-hmm. But she was still able to take time for herself and come back and and just understand why she's playing and her love for the sport, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think that was very clear. It was also actually quite interesting to see. You know, speaking of the political aspect, she she played two Russian players in in Blinkova and and Kasatina yeah. and and okay. although the, 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 the so go, go on. I was just say let's just use her as the way in because this is a this is another good way in. So so let's talk yeah. about Svidal, about Svidalina. And the whole war stuff and this draw, which the draw handed us lots of these matches as it happened. Like, you know, obviously having these a, a second, a big Ukrainian go deep because there's still bunches of Russians and Belarusians around in the tour created more of these situations. And so uh, she played Blinkova and then Kisakina and then Sabalenka back to back to back. And then uh, Sa- uh, Sabalenka, did I say that right? Blinkova, Kisakina and Sabalenka back to back to back, right? And then Sabalenka had also yeah. played Kostyuk in the first round. And those were both, you know, yeah. both of the Sabalenka versus the Ukrainian matches were on Chatria and were high profile matches. And uh, it really did highlight this uh, this tension and, and the war to me, because I think that the Ukrainian presence in these big matches felt more present to me than at any Grand Slam so far since the war began. I mean, it really did feel like it was a, a yeah. ma- you know, major narrative side of things and discussions of the handshakes being obviously contentious and and booed by the very boo happy crowd in in france yeah. uh and then also obviously what happened with, with sablank in the press room which you can talk about as you go through that but yeah what well, did you agree did it feel like the war was a, a more a clear player uh in this in this term than any before yeah most definitely and i think it's it's probably partly because svitolina's back obviously she's the most the most high profile ukrainian player i mean pretty much the best ukraine you know best ukrainian player female player ever, ever really yeah definitely um so 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 just her, her being in the draw and already being a a, a massive you know a, a massive storyline because she's coming back from you know giving birth that just the two things just made it, it even more present and obviously again you also had Sabalenka versus Kostyuk in the first round which was an, another you know Kostyuk is a, a, a extremely you know one of the talented young players and and also extremely has been extremely outspoken on it so yep. that that clash between between her and and Sabalenka the hi- highest ranked um Russian or Belarusian player just also felt charged with it just felt even bigger than the the many Ukrainian you know Russian clashes we've seen since um last February 
And yeah, and, and then of course the tournament started with Kostrick not not shaking Sabalenka's hand and walking off the court and getting booed. And and that was, you know, again, we we've kind of, we've seen many of these hand these handshakes and to the point where to me to me it's not it's not really it, it's I mean it's it's not really the story anymore. At least it shouldn't be because I don't know if it's happened. Yeah. You know, it's it's something that's happening and something that the other players, at least publicly, have you know have pub- said that they accept. Like the the Russian and Belarusians have said that they accept. Um, but yeah, the, the fact that Kostruk was booed by the crowd and then the crowd turned around and booed um, Kasekina after her match with Svitolina was, was a thing. Oh, but it was also interesting to see Svitolina actually, she didn't shake their hands, but she acknowledged Blinkova, said thanks, you know, great match, blah, 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 or, or kind of suggested that and thumbs up as well with, with um, Kasekina. That that there's you know there was no handshake, but the matches were played in, in good spirit, which I thought was interesting and nice. Yeah, no, definitely there was there there was there was a clear warmth there for sure, and then and the, and a mutual understanding, and you know there was the thumbs up between Kasakina and uh, Svitolina, and the, especially that second angle they showed later was was really nice. Yeah, and and one one actually on on this subject, what one thing that was interesting, and and I think actually that sets Svitolina apart. Was that um she was asked early in the tournament like what what you know after being away what what had you, what have you found when you come back about about the situation just what I don't know what 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 has struck you about how things are on the tour and she just said that she it was actually it was really intense she got really angry she was like punching her fist on the table you know in the press in the press conference she was like there's just a lot of like rubbish that people are t- talking about and focusing on. And I think one of those things was the just the whether it's I don't know Sab- Sabalenka's press conferences or the handshakes and and, and her her point was that you know, the real thing is that we should you know in my, in her opinion that like people should be focusing on her, you know giving aid to people who need it in Ukraine etc. So yeah, it was just interesting to see that com- contrasted with all, all the all the handshake and discussion that's. And discussions about those topics have have happened over the past few months. I mean, that's the thing. Like the handshake gate, if you want to call it, or booing a handshake, it's just like the perspective of like people. <laughs> you know, as as one Kardashian said, like Kim, there's people that are dying. Like literally, <laughs> like you're getting mad at a handshake, like amidst a war. Like what? Where? Where are your Where are your priorities? Your energies here, like, and it's like, also people are like, oh, just rise above it and shake the hand. It's intense. It's like, no, like, it's a it's a war in that front. And like, again, the Russian players mostly have seemed understanding about it. I want to get to Sabalenka. Um, were you in the press conference that where she got the repeated questions about uh, uh, Lukashenko no. and the war? No. So, so, so I was in the first press conference, which had. With, with, which had the interaction between Sabalenka and U- Ukrainian um, journalists, um, and that that was tense in itself. Um, the, in, in this first press conference, uh, the Ukrainian journalist asked her about being. She was saying um, about the responsibility of what. What's your message as as being a world number one? And but also like she, the the journalist kind of was telling Sabalenka that she was avoiding answering questions about direct questions about you know, the uh, the war, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and and whether she supported it, etc. And it, that that was extremely tense in itself, just the, the yeah. exchange. Um, um and then and, and so I wasn't I think the, the next press conference it was actually only a, a small group of people what people were there. 
and yeah, and, and that was really what set everything off. Um, with with the the journalist and Sablenka going back and forth, and the yeah, it was. But I, I, as I understand, it was it was obviously just you can see from the transcript it was it was very tense and. What what was what was the buzz in the press room after that happened? I know after these kind of things happen, there was obviously a buzz about it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I mean, people were just. I think it was generally just people were just taken aback by the exchange and and just how I don't know, just just how intense it would, it has been because obviously there have been a ton of political questions um, aimed at players, but it's it, it, it's it's they've never been it's never been that tense, and I think that's it's also one of the first times that. Ukrainian journalist has been in. That's what I was going to say. In the press room, you mentioned mentioned so, Svitolina being that, being back as being changed to the dynamic, and also Ukrainian journalists are not a fixture on the tour. Never have been, honestly, and are are yeah. having kind of the tour. To have have a Ukrainian there who wants to force the issue will really change the dynamic. And you know, I saw a lot of questions. I saw some debate with some people about like, is this appropriate or not uh, to ask these kind of questions and to sort of force the issue into harangue if you want to say that you know really go after sabalenka i think you know the questions that sabalenka got and especially that's like the the way that she set them up as ukrainian journalists to not let her give some non-committal answer i thought was actually very fair and was actually good journalism on a basic level of being like i'm not gonna you know there's not you can't just give a very vague cliche which has been the, the default response and sabalenka you know is one of the world's most famous Belarusians in you know period in terms of visibility and Belarus is obviously involved in this invasion and pretty alone in the world stage in terms of having taken the Russian side of these things uh, actively in this war um, and so and Sabalenka as the journalist pointed out has done things to show support for Lukashenko publicly in the past with various things and these are things we have not covered very much and honestly probably have done a poor job of covering and sort of been maybe at a distance, especially tennis reporters who know these players personally, maybe have pulled some punches that could have been uh, given tougher at the same time. Like one of the things, especially with Sabalenka, just because of her personality and this all just feels like she feels very poorly equipped to handle this just on a pure personality sort of an intellectual level. I don't think she engages with these, with these, with these things. And again, I'm not trying to say that she's dumb. That's not what I'm saying. But like, I don't think that she has, I don't think her brain works in the way to be diplomatic and to sort of hit the right notes in these ways. She's very, very natural and impulsive and, and sort of freewheeling and emotional in how she just goes about life on the tour. Right. And so like hitting the right notes and doing those things, it's not something that comes naturally to her. Having the right can't answer uh, to sort of hit the right marks in a way that, even if it's authentic, even if it comes from a real place, like you've seen with like Rublev, let's say, or Kisakina, like sort of foregrounding the the pain of the people or whatever. I don't think Sablank has done a good job of that in her answers. Um, I, I think that this is sort of all just seems kind of like not what she's cut out for. And it's not, you know, I was thinking this back when the invasion started. I remember being at Indian Wells. Daniel Medvedev was there and he had just become number one and he got asked the question in Indy Wells is basically like, Daniel, when will you and the Russian people rise up and overthrow Putin? And it was like, he is a tennis player. Like, what are we doing here? And he, I think he did relatively okay with this question, but it was sort of like, wow, this is what it's come to asking these tennis players for it. And I think that Sabalenka needs better help 
uh, when she is in these situations from her management or, or from the tour or whoever to be better able to better equipped to handle these questions. And maybe it kind of blindsided her to get these tough questions and the toughest questions so far, uh, 15 months into the war. Maybe she thought she was kind of had put this past her behind her um, and, and kind of moved on. But obviously this introduction of the Ukrainian uh, voice in the press room uh, changed that. Um, so, yeah. Um, I was just not. Uh, I was just not impressed. I was just not impressed with how she handled it. It's basically what I'm saying. I'm trying to say, like, mm-hmm. I think that she, I think that she owes the sport and herself better than the way she answered these questions. And that goes to also like what she was doing with the, at the net when she played Svitolina and waiting there and just sort of all of it. I was not. I was not impressed by it. No, I I did like. I I think the the subject matter of the questions it would it's valid to ask her and. Yeah, as a, as a journalist, I do, I do think like if if you want an, an answer from a player, if you want a, a genuine answer, then the tone and the, the the way to go about it is is important, and 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 obviously and the the second interaction between Sabalenka and the journalist kind of ended up with you know the, the you know Sabalenka saying I have no comments for you, the the journalist saying now we know everything, it's all clear. I, I don't know, it just became very like. You know, it, it, it was very gotcha. It, it didn't, yeah, exactly, yeah, and I, I don't think that was very helpful. And you, you know, it, it, it just it the the, the way the questions were asked, it, it wasn't going to um, yield a, a, I don't know, it wasn't ever going to yield a full and and comprehensive answer. I do agree with you that Sabalenka has, I, I think just just some of it she she. she like some some of her answers, even just before this tournament, I, I think she's hand, handled it less well than some of the other Russian and Belarusian yeah. players who probably yeah I don't know, who just for example um, at, at Madrid yeah I, I don't I don't think she handled it has handled these questions as well as um, some other players and kind of has tendency to feel sorry for herself. I mean, an, an obvious yeah. point about an obvious thing was was. What happened after when she obviously decided not to conduct press conferences for two two matches, and one of the reasons she gave was that she, she didn't feel safe. And I, I, I talk, you know, it's, it's one thing to say like it affects it affected my mental health. I don't want to talk, but that 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 phrasing was an an interesting choice. You know, that's what I'm saying. She she um, didn't hit the, the sort of, of prerequisite war. notes of like. Obviously, there's a lot of pain and suffering in the world, and this is a small, you know. Obviously, this is a, just there's there's token things you say, and there's platitudes you make, and, and you don't have to believe yeah. them or not, you know. And like, and I just don't think I think that she did not hit those those expected notes in a way that was again like I just don't think that she's cut out for this, which is fair. I mean, like, not most people, a lot of people aren't cut out for being, you know, a representative of their country in a unpopular war on a world stage and getting quoted you know questions about it like nothing about her training and her upbringing would prepare her for this right but the, yeah but, but the, the funny thing is that i mean but by by stepping away from by not doing the press conferences due to an inter- interaction with with one journalist it, it ended up you know when she did finally return it ended up just being this massive spectacle and again like that that that, that second round press conference or whatever, or whatever it was i think it only had like five journalists in it and then when she came back, it was the fullest until the finals. It was the the packed. It was the room was packed, and and you you know the 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 French Open main interview room. It's not a small room. Yeah. Um So and so, so yeah. She and and then she ended up ask, answering probably ten times more 
political questions than, than before. And but the funny thing is, I actually think you know clearly she she'd taken a step back and she think thought about it and and talked and presumably had conversations with her team and and she handled it well. Um, and she she was during her her return to the press room. Um, she was asked about um. <laughs> she's asked directly about Lukas- Lukashenko and yeah. the Belarusian dictator and whether she supports him and, and she said no I, I don't support him right now um, which was more more than yeah that was um, that was stunning I thought, I thought, yeah more, more than I thought she'd ever say it. yeah it was stunning and also kind of, um, <laughs> I, I just remember in the press room thinking like that's the you know, when when you're living in a dic- when your country is in a dictatorship, that's that's a tough, difficult thing to say. Again, as, going back to what I was saying before, like I almost wonder, like, did she even realize what she was saying? Again, like, I just feel like she's sort of like, kind of just riding the wave sometimes, and it doesn't it just doesn't feel intentional with her a lot of times. Yeah, the way that, ma- the way that makes me nervous on both ends yeah. now. When even when she that was a very hard pendulum swing when she said that uh, that she didn't support. Lukashenko because he was doing this war, which is a very direct criticism of this, yeah, the dictator of this country. Um, but I don't know how that was. Re- I actually don't know how that was received back in Belarus. That statement, but um, yeah, that was just like a it was a, a wild thing. I want to talk about the recusing herself from press, which is obviously a conversation, and I'm writing a book on Naomi Osaka uh, currently, which has a lot of parallels to this. Two years ago at the French Open, the reigning Australian Open champion, who was the number two seed decided not to do press because of mental health. And it was a whole worldwide conversation and scandal that happened and eventually wound up getting Osaka to pull out of the tournament after the Grand Slams threatened to, you know, ban her and give her huge sanctions for not doing press. I think it's a, a good result for the tournament and for Sabalenka, obviously, for the player, uh, to find a, a way to do this um, where they mm. let her not do press. What, what You're skeptical. What was it? I can, I know, I know the reporters were not happy about this. In, in the press room. Yeah. What, do you, what do you make of what happened there? And, and, and also what it says about how the sport has uh, adjusted in this post-Naomi world, because this was obviously something that was very clearly, you could point to Naomi as a precedent um, for this. And also the same way, in the same way that Naomi recused herself from press and in, in the process made herself a much bigger story at the French Open that she was going to be otherwise. Yeah, some, a lot of parallels, and a lot of different sort of things. Yeah. What do you make of that, of, of that whole... And how that was received, and can you confirm that people were not happy? And can you explain why? People were very much not happy. Um, um, so, yeah, I think the the I mean, after what happened with Osaka, and rightfully the the criticism that the tournament received from widely, I think that due to, because of their actions, um, you know, in in terms of threatening and you know that that statement they released and just kind of you know clearly. The way Osaka reacted, acted in that situation, as she said, like many times, she it wasn't kind of she wasn't perfect and it wasn't you know ideal. But I mean, when when you're going through you know when you're going through mental health issues, oftentimes when you you kind of speak out or act out, it, it isn't in a perfect manner. That yeah. you know it isn't perfect. Let and me draw, then, let me draw a quick I, contrast there, just to pause on that point, because Osaka, yeah. when she didn't want to depress, she put out a, a statement on Twitter and social media. Um, Twitter and Instagram and it was very sort of confrontational and that was her way of, of communicating with the tournament that she wasn't going to do it whereas Sabalenka after this press conference clearly had behind the scenes talks with people uh, handlers yeah. from the tour and from the tournament uh, to come to a solution and so that that was a much more productive 
way of finding a, a solution rather than it didn't create the standoff that Osaka did. Yeah, but I mean, obviously, the, the then the, the Tors reacted really harshly and uh, I think almost like saw Osaka as a threat and, you know, had all of those threats threats, you know, to, as you said, to, to ban her, to, you know, disqualify her, whatever. Um, so I think following that, it, when a top a player and a top player at that come, comes to the, comes to you and says that they can't do a press conference because of mental health, you know, the, the, I think the toss have to, you know, in, in any situation have to um, listen to them and, and find, a, you know, find a solution. The issue was actually more to do with <laughs> the solution they came to and, and, and how they communicated it. You know, I've, I've, obviously Sablenka had been requested after what happened and everyone was kind of sitting around wait, <laughs> waiting for her and then suddenly a a, a, um, a transcript drops on, on on the ASAP Sports that says she'd done a press conference and <laughs> clearly she clearly she hadn't because the press room is, <laughs> you know, is... is you can glass. see the press room and no one is in <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah, it's literally glass. Like you can walk past it and, and no one was in there. So obviously, the, just trying to figure out what had happened, um, myself and a bunch of other journalists obviously went to the tournament and tried to talk to them, and they were just very, they just ref, kind of ref, the Roland Garros, the organization, just refused to explain the reasons why you know explain what happened you know as a journalist the, the number one thing you want is information so you can understand what's happening and they just were before anyone had even made a judgment they they were incredibly defensive and you know i mean all of the defensive condescending couldn't understand why <laughs> people wanted to know who who had actually spoken to her. You know, ha, you know, had you chosen, you know, the, the the tournament had actually said that it was a pool of journalists who had spoken yeah. to her, whereas it, eventually you learned that that was a complete lie and it was one a member of WT, a WTA staff member. Um, a great a great WTA staff member for the record. a great WTA staff member. We yeah. love this um, WTA staff member for a long we time. We absolutely we absolutely love. That person, but um, yeah. The, I mean, the issue is because you, know, you know the issue is with the tournament anyway, not not the WTA. The, the fact that the tournament just didn't tell the truth, and yeah, and so that was extremely frustrating. Um, and just not 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 yeah, just not getting to the bottom of what was going on. It also, um, it also because, not, you know, it, it also comes to this time just as more on the sort of Osaka legacy part of it, um, where the the tournament Roland Garros specifically especially last year, I don't know how it was this year, but restricted access uh, for media to get into player areas that had previously, or I would say restricted areas and not just player areas, but like where coaches and people had congregate uh, tournament areas uh, under the guise of mental health was the, was the, was the uh, reason given for giving journalists not access to certain corridors, which was reacted to very poorly by media. When I was there in Paris last year, um, people saying like, it's, what does it say? How rude is it to us to say that if we walk down a hallway, we're going to hurt someone's mental health? Like, it just, it was sort of this, this sort of way of, of potentially overcorrection, if you want to call it that, or, or at least doing a lot of things in the name of what Naomi had, had started. Um, and so I do think that's still part and parcel. And, there, and I think the, cha- the changes that Naomi, that event, and that was really a crisis for the sport, uh, in Paris years ago, um, I think there's still some reverberations. There's still some some cracks or or scars, whatever you want to say, from that can still be seen if you see it that way. 
Yeah, but yeah, but yeah. Um, and I mean, I mean, they, they. I think in in some ways they also just you took advantage of that situation to yes to make make changes that um they wanted, <laughs> um, uh, not just the French Open and and uh, well, this is getting into kind of you know ju- the, the issues but behind the scenes with with journalists which. Yeah. I'm, I'm always I'm always aware of talking about because I know tennis fans people don't care do people care. don't care people yeah, do and don't care. don't care let us know if you listen if you care or not it's <laughs> a tweet say I cared or I don't care yeah um, but in this case just that the the frustration frustrating thing was just that, that there was no just the way Roland Garros just re- refused and failed to communicate and and, and clearly that so there was a change because after her the, the second match that she decide, decided not to speak to media after the you know the then Roland Garros said Irina Sablenka has decided not to speak to media she's speaking with a member of the WTA staff and X Y Z you know yeah. and gave, you know gave the actual information instead of lying so that that was the whole thing yeah and yeah it was, it's tough as well obviously in in, in Sablenka's uh, from her perspective. It, <laughs> In the midst of having a great tournament, by the way, she'd she'd never she'd never passed the third round of the French Open and went went all the way to the semis, and before pretty massive choke against much of a you know it's it's funny that she was having a great tournament in the midst of every, all of that that was going on in in the background and um, yeah. behind the scenes. Yeah, no, it was obviously she 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 could have won this tournament. I mean, really, she was a point away from making the final, and she's won her last match on clay against Fiontek. Like she was in this with a chance for sure. And uh, yeah, so again, I I see it. I from the tournament. If I'm the tournament, I'm saying it's a success because we kept this player in the tournament, kept the tournament moving, right? Because Naomi was a was was forced or took herself out of the tournament after this whole thing and cost the tournament one of its biggest stars. And and Sabalenka was able to stay for the viewers and for audiences and stuff. And they'll say, "Who cares about press conferences?" Maybe on some level. Anyway, it was a it was a damage control kind of thing. One lighter moment in press. I'm looking at Sabalenka's draw in the fourth round. She played Sloane Stevens, um, who you had a chance before that match to ask about her previous uh, match. Uh, which I don't really have. It's not really a question. If you want to say anything about it, sure. But I just know I was listening to the Body Sir podcast uh, earlier today, their first week episode, and they were very uh, pleased with the question you asked. Apparently, they were the ones who asked the first question uh, to Sloan back in Cincinnati uh, several years ago. Uh-huh. Got the uh, got the if it's not uh-huh. one scam, it's another answer. And there's been a few. There's been a few allusions. It's been a recurring sort of the- motif in her yeah. So uh, very it was, it was, I- yeah. I just enjoyed that she. I wasn't sure if she, you know, some players have no idea what they said even like, you know, two weeks ago. So, so yeah, when when I asked her about it, as soon as she she realized she realized what quote was coming, like her face just lit up and and she kind of cut me off before I even asked the question. Which yeah, was hilarious. It was great. So you did you did very well, very beautiful. The, the someone once said it was beautifully beautifully yeah. put. You did it. You did it very well, <laughs> very well. This is a tired topic. I'm not even that interested in it, but I want to acknowledge Steven Sabalenka. That match that wound up happening was the one women's match that was put as a night session. This is the second year of these sort of dedicated showcase night sessions. These one match tickets they're selling. It seems like everybody thinks these are garbage and should go away. This 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 scheduling conceit. Um, 
is it going to stay? Like, why is it so bad? Is the French Open showing any signs of acknowledging this is a, a flop, this night session thing? And also, I almost wonder, like, I feel bad for ticket buyers because, like, they want it's not easy to get tickets to a Grand Slam. Tickets are probably more available. They had a nice time. You think you're going to get a great match. And it just seems like such, such a bad deal. It really, I, yeah. I, I just dislike it. I think, you know, yeah, I just dislike it. We talked yeah. about this before, but I wanted to say it. yeah. it's poopy. Yeah, and clearly the the tournament is is treating the, the female players differently, and by not 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 allowing them the quote unquote sh- you know showcase match. Um, but I, I think the root of the problem is the actual night sessions and the fact that they should not be you know, particularly in their their form, it, 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 their one match form, it, it should not exist like that. And yeah, as you said, it, it's 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 not good value for the. For the fans, the players, none of the players want to be playing at night in, in Roland Garros. So I, t- I tell you that everyone is, <laughs> everyone is, is, when they put in their requests, they want to play in the day. Yeah. And so so it's not ideal for anyone. It clearly, uh, the, the reason they exist is because the Roland Garros sold um, part of their TV rights to Amazon Prime, which carries the matches, the night match, which is exclusively... But the funny thing thing about that is is that means that these quote unquote showcase matches aren't even being shown to the bigger audience. You know, the the, yeah. the in in France at least, you know, that the rest of the tournament is shown by France Television, which is the uh, national public broadcaster, a bit like BBC kind of in a way. You know, we know in the past, like that when when big matches would happen, it felt like the whole of France was watching because you know there's a massive potential audience. Whereas this is just Amazon Prime, which doesn't have you know, as, at least in the UK, doesn't have a, a, a big viewership. There are many people who use Amazon Prime, but they're not necessarily watching, you know, t- tennis on it. Um, like, so, yeah. I, I, but, yeah, I just I just think they should be abolished, but they won't be because, the, I mean, the, the contract is already has a number of years still to go, and they're making crazy money for selling one match a, a day to... You know, I mean, the, o- the obvious solution is just to make it what the U.S. Open now has, which is have two, uh, two matches in the day session on Ash and then two matches in the night session. And, like, I understand clay matches are sort of – and there's some neighborhood restrictions, but, like, move past that. Start the night session if you need to at, at 6 p.m. or at 5.30 even. And put a knot before if you want for the second match. But give people more because, like, you're just setting it up for – for for obviously the, the gender inequality stuff. It's a really bad look. when you. I wish they would just say – it was just a men's match. Say so like we're gonna put a best of five match in the night session. It's just a ticket. It's a it's a fixed men's thing, you know, because it's what makes sense. It's one in these uh, lopsided asymmetrical formats they play. Like we're just put a men's match there because it's likely to be longer and we all get one match. When you say that it's match of the day and you make it seem like either one has it and you never almost never pick the women except for one token time each of these years, you make it seem like you really gave it a lot of thought and each time independently decided the women weren't going to be it. And that makes the women look way worse than if it's zero. I think one is way worse than zero. Because if it's zero, at least it's like a system. If it's one, it's like you just don't think they're very interesting and worthwhile. And Amelie even said that last year, which was not great. And a lot of the WTA alumni were not thrilled with her uh, for for throwing her 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 product under the bus like that. Um, so yeah, but all of it's all of it's bad, and 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 that seems just like this glaring hole um, in what otherwise seemed like a relatively smooth tournament from a spectator point of view uh great weather this year uh never rained it seemed like never you know it, it yeah it seemed like a uh 
good time mostly was had by people. I know, and I know this tournament is very tough um, actually to attend as a fan because the, some of the outer courts are so small. Um, it's it's not an easy tournament to roam the grounds at. It's not what I recommend, honestly, uh, to fans who want to go to a Grand Slam. I would pick Australia or the U.S. or honestly, I'd pick Rome over over Roland Garros a lot of times. Any other sort of miscellaneous thoughts on on the French Open as we wrap up here? I mean, just just on on, on other women, it was you mentioned her, but Pavlyuchenkova. It was, it was mm-hmm. cool to see her make a, a, a surprise run of um, two years after making the final. She talked about how. Um, I mean, as as often happens with long term injuries, she she wasn't sure if she would come back and come back as herself. She gone gone off the tour thinking she was taking just a few you know a few weeks out, and suddenly it was you know protected ranking time. You know, so taking that amount of time out from the tour um, to heal her injury. I think she took it might may have been like ten months in total. Um, mm. Yeah, and and then she, and in obviously in the build up to. The French Open, she was double bagged by Iga Swiatek. Again, left left that match thinking, "Am I really? Am I that bad? Really? You know, am I that bad?" Yeah. But she said she it it made her like it made her go straight back to the practice court and just work her her ass off. And yeah, she she had a great tournament and beating a number of seeded players actually. Samsonova, uh, Potapova, Mertens. So yeah, all in three sets as well. Another person, I guess, another person to note was. Another um, Russian, Mira Andreeva, who yes, and en- ended up having a big showdown with Coco Golf, and I think it was quite important for Golf to win that match. Came back like, from a set to to win six seven six one six one. That that was a you know that was the first time Golf had played someone who was like over a year younger than her, basically not 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 the same, not born in the same year or or older than yeah. her. And but yeah, Andreeva made the third round from qualies and is now top one hundred players. Uh, one hundred one actually, I think one number one hundred one, which is great for her. On the Russian stuff, I, I, okay, on Andreeva, she's always been great. She's like very interesting in press and very honest and disarming. And the quote about Andy Murray, which obviously got a lot of traction when she talked about him and how dreamy she thinks he is, whatever. And uh, and then also had got some attention for her assessment of Alice and Risk, who she beat in the first round, which was very blunt. Um, <laughs> And but I'm wondering, uh, what was I going to say? First of all, you were, in, were you at the at that match, uh, golf Andreeva match? Yeah, yeah. Uh, did you see the moment where pe- this was not shown on TV at almost at all, where people thought she could have gotten defaulted? Uh, yes, I saw. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What what happened there? So it, it was in the t- right at the end of the first eight tie break. Um, I think the penultimate point. She she led six four and then. Really long point ended with Goff actually, you know, playing a great point and finishing it off, and then she hit the ball. Andreeva you know, in, in frustration, and Andreeva, yeah, in frustration, Andreeva hit a you know the spare ball in right into the stands, and it was hard, and it was actually right. Um, so the the press box is overlooking like the baseline, and it's very close, and it was just to the stands to to the right of it, like, um, so it was pretty close, and it the, as I. I'm fairly certain, just by by magic, somehow the ball didn't hit someone because she hit it hard and she hit it into the stands, and I think it kind of hit the back fence, and then someone picked it up and threw it to her. Didn't seem like anyone, you know, it didn't seem like it hit anyone. But clearly, if it had hit someone, it, it would have been a default. I mean, it should have been a default. Um, but yeah, just that that was very lucky. I'm curious. Do, do you think? I was having this discussion with other people. Do you think that the intention 
it's, it's worth the default or is it if it hits someone so so now we finally as we hit reach the half hour mark one and a half hour mark we hit the top of the biggest story of the french open <laughs> uh which was miyukato yeah. uh, in women's doubles um and literally and we talked about this and i actually want to talk about I'm curious to talk about why it was the biggest story. I do think there's some interesting sort of, you know, autopsy to do on this story. But, like, this is the one that I got, like, texts from people who aren't tennis fans. Like, what do you think about this thing that the ball girl? What, what this, I got, like, multiple people who, like, don't follow tennis were asking me or were reading about it and asking me about it. And it was the breakout story. Uh, you obviously know by now because it was such a big story. Miyakato and the women's doubles hit a ball across the net uh, between games. Um, and sort of like a practice shot. Like, she had, like, missed a shot, I think. So she was, like, hitting it back a little bit uh, but also hitting it just because they were changing sides of who was serving and the ball hit a, a ball girl who had balls in both her hands had her hands full was getting ready to throw balls to the other team uh Cerebus Tormo and uh Bojkova uh who were serving next and hit her like kind of in the shoulder or like something like that like upper body um and it became this whole thing where the ball girl started crying um and kept crying and and the other team uh, sort of was like pointed out to the umpire saying like, hey, you see, she's crying, she's crying. And it was being phrased as they were like lobbying for a default. And then sure enough, uh, Miyukatu got defaulted from the match and the other team won uh, the match. And it was a huge story. And obviously, like any huge story, the French Open, the French Open did a copyright strike on the video major eye roll there. I'm so sick of this tournament with their copyright stuff. They're so bad at it. It's uniquely bad the FFT with this stuff. I mean, also that's fair use. If it's a news event, it's fair use. That's that video should be able to stay. But anyway, yeah, like uh, this was a huge, huge story. And Kato uh, was not DQ from the entire tournament. Which usually happens when you get defaulted from a match, you get taken out every draw. She's allowed to keep playing in the uh, mixed doubles with Tim Putz and they won the tournament um, in one of the strangest feel good ter- stories ever. Like you hit a girl, she started, cr- she couldn't stop crying and everyone's rooting for you to win. Like it's just weird on paper, but it was it was uh, nice that she had a moment after it was a very yeah bizarre and the spotlight on it was crazy. Like so, I'm curious, a, a what you thought about this, Matt? And the other thing I'll say about this, that's how we got a lot of comparisons to Djokovic getting to hold from the U.S. Open uh, in 2020 when he hit the the ball and hit the Lions woman in the throat, and then caused her more clear like physical distress than was caused to this ball girl who really just did seem like she wasn't actually injured at all. It was just sort of like. She was stunned and, and rattled, and it was almost more of like a panic attack kind of crying, yeah, which is which yeah. is still distressed and, and fine um, and understandable. But what I'll say about this is like, and that's a big misconception, there is not that clear a rule about this. This was an issue when I was covering the Djokovic default, like in a breaking news situation, like trying to figure out what actually the rule was in this moment. There's not a rule in the books that says if you hit a ball and it hits someone and injures them, you're out. That's not a rule. That rule, people think it's like, well, it's, that's the rule, black and white. You got to default them. Like, that rule actually doesn't exist. That is not a rule in tennis. And people think it is, and it's not. And it is a judgment call. And even for Djokovic, it was a judgment call. Even if this woman was gasping for air on the ground, and it was like a much bigger, clearer scene of like, it's clearly reckless and clearly caused some sort of physical issue for a person. Obviously, she didn't die or anything. But like, you know, anyway. Um, and it wasn't like in the course of play, he just gotten broken and like he was hitting it backwards and, and not looking. And anyway, they were not that, they were not that similar, but anyway, there's ambiguity in the rules. I don't know. It definitely seemed like the players 
and everyone in attendance was hugely behind Kato and very uh, against uh, Tribus Tormo and Bojkova, who were two well-liked players, by the way, before this, yeah. um, for, for seemingly angling for the default. So what do you make of the issue? And then also, why do you think this became like the most clicked-on story of the tournament? What does it say about tennis? This was the story. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it didn't... It, it, clearly, it, it wasn't a ball-struck in anger. And I think that is, yeah, or, or even frustration or even, you know, she, she, it was an, an underarm backhand, you know, towards the ball girl. Um, and, and I think that that's why... Um, yeah, I, I think the, these issues, are, I think it's difficult, you know, sometimes to, you know, <laughs> to, 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 to decipher or, you know, to, to figure out whether... The ball was struck in anger, if it was frustration, blah, blah, blah. But if the ball girl hadn't been crying, it wouldn't have been a default. Like if she just like gotten hit and like shrugged it off and like kept going, nothing happens. Like, and yeah. that's to me, it's just like, it's a weird distinction to have in a sport. And I, you know, to take away some, all of someone's pay and default them, I mean, you lose all your prize money. And it's, you know, some five digit amount of money she lost for this because someone was crying. Like it's just, yeah. it feels and, amateurish and, and, and arbitrary. Yeah, and it's also just in, it's one of the only times you'll ever see an, an umpire change their mind because obviously the umpire had ruled that it was a warning, and then suddenly, you know, um, sorry, Bestormo and um, Bushkova spoke to him. The words that his default were said, I, I did check, um, and and also that the book girl was crying and she has blood, <laughs> which I don't think was actually, <laughs> which was I don't think was actually a thing. Um, but yeah, just, just just to see that kind of influence the umpire, and then obviously the supervisor came on. Yeah, it, I mean the, the whole thing was a bit of a mess, I thought. Um, and 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 afterwards, um, Soibes Tomo tried to kind of, you know, they they received a ton of hate as well, which which wasn't great. You know, that their social media, their Instagram, oh, yeah. um, that the, like their most recent photos were just filled with like thousands of comments. Talk about big countries. Japan and Indonesia will turn out if you if you are seen as a perceived yeah. enemy of those people. Talk about your you know hundreds of millions of people combined between those two countries. Yeah, um, so, so yeah, it, it, I thought it was just a top, a mess basically, and it, it was also so I was in in the um, Kato Kato and Poets their, their press conference um, after their the next day after this they is won a fascinating their, their transcript. Yeah, I can't remember what the transcript said. I just remember just being just the whole thing was quite it's surreal. Well, it's a ride because, because Kato like Kato doesn't really talk, and so it's just like puts talking yeah. on her behalf, and then like it, yeah, it, anyway, I recommend it. It's a fascinating document. Like yeah, yeah. So, so, so so um yes, yeah, so Kato came in, Kato and puts came in, and they were going to do in, in, speak you know speak in English first, and then the first quest question um was asked by um. Elena from PA, um, and but before the the quest, before she'd even asked the question, um, Kato, you know, who'd obviously just won a mixed doubles match, um, she started crying, and I, I think it. My guess it was probably because there were more, you know, the the, the attention. That that it, it wasn't a packed press room by any means. It was, but there was like a, a a group of people who were interested and and wanted to to know more, and and I think that just set her off, and so she was taken out of the of the press conference room with. By, by the WTA, you know, um, moderator, and then she came back in. But she, it was also that like she wasn't, say, as you said, she wasn't saying anything. Like the moderator was like, uh, you know, do, "Do you want to say anything? Is there anything you want to say?" And she was kind of just staring, 
you know, straight ahead and crying. So it, it was very just tough and awkward. And in the end, um, Puerts, Puerts kind of, um, kind of stepped up and, and res- respond. Well, first of all, she answered, then answered questions in, in Japanese. Then Puerts stepped up and kind of tried to, uh, explain what she, what she you know the, the perspective she he'd got from her and, and what she told him and then our good friend Aki translated a, a question one question at the end which and, and after asking a ton of questions in Japanese so it was just a lot was going on and it was just I don't know it, it was kind of a surreal moment to, to and there was a question well. and there were like some other like questions about like Puts's personal life hey Puts I heard you speak French <laughs> I, I have to say, sorry, that that was Aki as well. Like, sh- shout out to our, 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 our Japanese friend, a- yeah. Aki, who, who, Aki Uchida, who, who, bas- who basically just commanded that press conference. I'll ask questions in Japanese, then ask questions in English, then translated for people, and was, was kind of the star of the show. Um, but yeah, it, it was tough for Keto, and, but then, but obviously she, you know, there, there was a, also a tunnel, she felt a ton of support from people, and and managed to, you know, get through it. And it wasn't just that she won, won a slam at the end. It was her first ever slam. <laughs> it was her first ever slam. Yeah. And in, in, in any, in any, you know, women's or mixed doubles. Um, and why do I think, I, I, why do I, you know, one of your, your initial question was why? Yeah, why was, why was, it, why was pop, this pop the story that like resonated? What is it, and what does it say about tennis? I mean, I think it's a story because it, I mean, it was dramatic and it was, it, it, it's something that people thought was, an injustice in a way, and um, yeah, just it, it's also something you d- you don't see often. Someone getting defaulted, um, as much as people misuse that word. What does it say about tennis? I mean, I, I think it's what we already know that that so often it's these big moments, not necessarily related to the actual tennis that's cut through more than the actual tennis and more than the actual you know the results and the the you know, back end winners and whatever and that just that just seems to be where we're at with tennis where it's really capable of kind of exploding into the into public consciousness, whether it's this, whether it's the handshake stuff, whether it's I don't know, you know, all the all these little things, the like Djokovic in Australia. I, I don't know. Yeah. It, it, these the these moments that just kind of go viral but oftentimes unless it's I get what Djokovic winning twenty three slams. It, it's it's off. It's it's not it's not the tennis. There's something about tennis rules that seems like, and the rules being like very dry rules. It seems like, and sometimes very vague rules. Or I don't know what it is. I'm not sure where I'm going with this. But something about tennis just seems so designed to create tension, in this way. That's like I think it's part of why I like the sport. And obviously the actual product of the match and head to head and you know one-on-one thing is tense in itself and the very stark winning and losing that it presents. And there's always no, no draws or whatever in tennis. Like it's always like this, or that, but there are these things that, that I, I was, you know, I was finding during book research. I was looking up Serena, which she was up to in 2018. Um, Cause obviously, you know, she's a big character in Naomi's 2018. And there was a time, you know, when she didn't get seated for the French open after she came back and like all these people were weighing in, you like Ivanka Trump, writing like tweets being like, this is an outrage and Serena wasn't seated and like we need to have better mothers rules like for like protected seatings for mothers like not just the ranking but the seatings it was like this is so nitty-gritty that like the president's daughter who's obviously some white house role at the time or whatever she was doing was like weighing in on like this rule this wta very like kind of obscure rule and making it into some big social outrage 
Like it just sort of tennis has its capability to do that. I'm not saying that was right or wrong. That Serena shouldn't. I'm, I'm not even getting into the value of that opinion here or there, but like, yeah, something about it just generates that. The one thing we forgot to talk about that I do want to talk about, I'm going to talk about this earlier or later in the geopolitics, whatever, right off the bat at this tournament, Novak Djokovic on his way to his 23rd Grand Slam. Um, oh, wins his first round match, uneventful match. He beats uh, Alex Kovacevic of America. And afterwards, he writes on the camera lens at Chatrier, Kosovo is the heart of Serbia. Kosovo is heart symbol Serbia and stop violence. Uh, there have been flare-ups in this region in recent weeks in Kosovo, with you know, which is obviously an ethnically Albanian area that is declared independence and recognized by a lot of countries, but not all countries. Serbia uh, still obviously claims it. I just thought this was a remarkable way to start the tournament for Djokovic, um, and obviously he won it and stuff, and it didn't wind up being a big issue beyond his, his first round. I guess he got asked about it in Serbia. I don't know how much he talked about it after that. But it, I thought it was really out of character for him actually to make this sort of very overtly political nationalistic statement on court at a grand slam. I thought it was one of the most like overtly political things that's ever happened in a, on a grand slam court actually. Um, and by a player. And I thought it was remarkable and kind of stunning. Honestly, and not, and not, I mean, we're like, I was making controversy again. This was a completely different flavor of, of thing than he's ever done before. Um, so I thought it was, I thought it was remarkable. Yeah. Um, so, so the, the background to it is, is that there were some, there were elections, um, in like, I think mayoral elections or like, yeah. you know, area elections in, in Northern, well, in, in Kosovo and in, in, in the Northern Kos- part of Kosovo where it's majority ethnic Serbs, the, the ethnic Serbs had, um, basically boycotted the election and refused to vote. And so... <laughs> the uh, ethnic Albanian mayors were voted in by like three point five percent of the population, and so that led to violence and and you know clashes between uh, pro- protesters, right? Protesters, whatever, um, Serbian protesters and the authorities and NATO peacekeepers, yeah, yeah, N- NATO peacekeepers, and it seemed like you know that 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 um the like the, the UK the UK, US, uh, EU ha- had been also crit- critical of like the the uh, um, the Kosovan authorities for kind of you know not 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 trying to you know put a lid on it basically at the while you know all of this violence is happening with with the ethnic uh, pro- you know, protesters and so it was a bit basically it was a, a big a massive kind of issue and yeah Djokovic wading in. I don't know. It was, it was interesting to see, like, just just different perspectives. Like, um, Kecmanovic saying, "Oh, it, it wasn't a big deal," blah blah blah. But then, but yeah, it it, it did see it was a change, and and I don't know. It it did feel different to see Djokovic, like, you know, he in addressing it, he he could have simply said, you know, he could have said the last part of the um. The statement which is stop the violence but it was a very kind exactly. of choice to if he'd written stop the violence in kosovo not an issue yeah you know but, but like, like yes so uh, yeah but it, yeah and, and so yeah that and but he, he he very well knew what he was do, you know what was going to happen like he, i mean he's he's yeah he it wasn't initially because he'd written in in serbian um it wasn't initially picked up by 
you know, um, English, you know, non non Serbian press. But when when the Serbian press asked him, he basically said he knew that it was going to have backlash, and he, you know, kind of, you know, he he had no regrets about it, etc. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. It was the yeah, it it was a choice basically. It was a choice, and just like it, again, it was out of character for him to do this. And obviously, we kind of not surprising that he feels this way. But Kosovo, he's he was at a Kosovo is Serbia rally and was recorded a video for it. Rajvi won his first Grand Slam actually in two thousand eight. So this is not surprising uh, per se at all that he's on the side of whatever. But just like choosing it, and the other thing is, and I was listening to Body Serve, and they hit a lot of these same points, but I definitely agree with them. You and I both know we get sent lots of things about Djokovic's domestic political activities in Serbia and what he's up to there and who he's hanging out with and what they may have done in the 90s. You know, like, there's a lot of associations there and a lot of mess there that I that I haven't mentioned or touched at all because it hasn't really been relevant. But for him to introduce this suddenly at, on the camera lens at Chatrier and have that message broadcast on all the big screens around Chatrier, blowing up on the Jumbotrons, and then around TVs around the world too, I think makes it more fair game talk about and to ask him about and to foreground in coverage of Djokovic and I am curious I I, I kind of hope that somebody will do a deeper dive into this um going to Wimbledon you know like what he what his role is in this more background on it like you said there's a lot of layers to this you gave the context on what's happening in this most recent Kosovo event but it's a very complicated region and again just like the sort of depth of geopolitical Knowledge and recent history knowledge and current events knowledge you need to have to to cover tennis these days is is kind of mind boggling. And interest, interesting. It, it's, never, not never, never, it's not there's, boring. It's not boring. There's never a dull day. I wouldn't mind a dull day every now and again, uh, but never dull with you, Tumani. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, enjoy the rest of your time in Paris. Yeah. Um, and talk to you hopefully around Wimbledon, I guess. Yeah. Thank you. I, I hope I sounded coherent at 3 a.m. after, Gosh, yes. after three, three straight weeks. <laughs> but yeah, I'm going to sleep for like 50 hours now and, and hopefully, yeah, I'll see you on the other side. Sounds good. Thank you. Merci. Au revoir. Bye. Au revoir. À l'Angleterre. <laughs> <laughs>